Well, good morning. My name is Paul Dalla. If I don't know you, I'm one of the elders here at Stafford Baptist Church. Uh, it is, again, a joy to gather with you as we worship our God this morning. Uh, today we have uh, the ability, by God's grace, to bring to conclusion our short series uh, here in the book of Haggai. So we started this at the beginning of March uh, and, and get to finish it this week, uh, Lord willing. So our sermon text this morning is going to be the, the final chapter of Haggai, chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to, to open there, as, as I've done each week. Haggai is part of the minor prophet section. Uh, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. So if you, uh, a good point of reference for you might be to flip open to the Gospel of Matthew there at the beginning of the New Testament, flip back a couple of chapters uh, and find Haggai between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Well, just as a reminder of where we've been in Haggai uh, so far, Haggai is a post-exilic prophet. That is, he's preaching to uh, Israelites who have returned from the exile. Uh, uh, these Israelites had returned about 16 to 18 years before Haggai preached. If you remember, Israel had, had been brought from Egypt into the Promised Land, and then they had disobeyed God continually until they were exiled into Babylon. Babylon was overtaken by uh, Persia, and Persia uh, was the nation that sent Israel back, or a, a chunk of Israel back to Jerusalem. And so the remnant of Israel back in Jerusalem, though, uh, had been unfaithful. They had not been prioritizing the rebuilding of the temple. They had prioritized their own homes rather than God's honor and glory. And because of this, they were experiencing drought and famine. And so Haggai comes speaking a message from the Lord, really four messages over the course of these two chapters. In his first message in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, he's rebuking the Israelites, calling them to consider their priorities. And then in verses 12 through 15, which we looked at last week, we saw the people respond in repentance. This work of repentance being assured and applied through the presence of God as he stirred the people up to rebuild the temple. Yet the work was not completed. And it seems that the, Israel, the Israelites were still in need of some encouragement from the Lord. The work was again slowing. And so with that in mind, let's read Haggai chapter 2 and see how the people are encouraged to obey God as they hear his promises to bless his people. We'll read Haggai chapter 2 starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. 
On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches, touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatel declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that, that your word, in your word we find your promises. That, Father, our comfort come not from our circumstances or from our own works, but from your promises found here in your word. Father, we pray that your promise this morning and your word would give us life. Lord, work by your spirit through your word to create life in hearts that are dead and Lord, to spur and to stir hearts that are need in need of repentance. And Father, this we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, William Wilberforce, hopefully you know him. He's, he's one who led of the work in Britain to abolish the slave trade and, and ultimately slavery altogether. William Wilberforce once said this. He said, I daily become more sensible that my work must be affected by constant and regular exertions rather than by sudden and violent ones. So as Wilberforce went throughout his life, what he noticed was more and more he needed endurance. That is, the, the constant and regular exertion over a long period of time rather than the adrenaline rush of, of uh, exertion and then a crash. And so we see this in his life. He labored for 18 years for the slave trade to be abolished and, and for slavery altogether to be abolished, not, not seeing the, the fruit of that until his death. But I think this, this quote highlights a truth for us about the Christian life. The Christian life is not for sprinters, but rather for marathoners. 
This is true not only as we seek to fight injustice, like Wilberforce sought to fight injustice, but also as we seek to bring the gospel to bear on our own lives through personal obedience. Obedience takes endurance. The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 10, verse 36. He says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We need endurance in doing the will of God. Yet it can be hard to have endurance. It can be hard to endure and press on. We probably find ourselves more to be like sprinters who, when convicted of our sin, we turn in repentance, we push forward in obedience, but it doesn't last. Like sprinters, we run fast for a short period of time and then come to a complete stop. We find ourselves tempted to give in. Maybe we're discouraged because we long to see huge growth, but instead the work that we've given resulted in little progress. But whatever the reason, I think we find it hard to endure in obedience. Well, the Israelites are no different. Here at the conclusion of verse 15 of chapter 1, the people of God had turned in repentance. They were working to restore the temple. But just a month later... The work had already slowed. They had already become discouraged. And so the word of the Lord came again through Haggai to this people. And the people were called to endure in obedience through really three different promises of blessings from God. And so this morning, that will be our main idea. Endure in obedience because God promises to bless his people. Let me say that again. Endure in obedience because God promises to bless his people. So we've been called from God's word in Haggai to to hear the rebuke of the Lord and prioritize obedience, to hear the rebuke of the Lord and respond with repentance. And this week we are called to hear God's promises and endure in obedience. So we're going to consider our passage in three points, basically one for each prophecy that Haggai makes. He's got three messages that make up chapter 2, each one with a promise of blessing. So first, we'll see God's promise of a greater glory for the temple in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And then we'll see God promises a greater blessing for the repentant in chapter, 10, or chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And then we'll see God promises a greater king who is the Messiah in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. So let's consider God's first promise of blessing, God's promise of a greater glory for the temple. We start here in chapter 2, verse 1, with a date marker. But while it doesn't have a year like all the other date markers, I think that's because I were to, were to assume that the, the year that's there at the end of chapter 1, verse 15, is to be carried over. He likely intended uh, for the year in verse 15 to be duplicated. So in verse 15, it goes day, month, year. And then we're to read year, month, day here at the beginning of chapter 2. So this is just, like I said, about a month after their, re- their repentance response there in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And once again, we see that this is the word of the Lord. This is the Lord speaking through Haggai. Haggai is not the originator of this message. He's merely the, the, um, the microphone for that message to the people. And this message is for not just the leaders, but for all the people. We see that in verse 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, speak to Joshua, and to all the remnant of the people. 
And what is this message? Well, we see three questions there in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And this me- this, these questions are to cause the Israelites to, to highlight the Israelites' concern that they've realized the temple is not going to look like it used to. So you kind of speaks to those who maybe had seen the house in its former glory, seen the house before it was destroyed, had seen the temple before they were exiled. And these people were, were likely discouraged because now the house was not going to look anything like it. They, they did not have the resources that Solomon had. Remember when Solomon built the temple, he had pulled from, from resources from all over the world to bring to, to him to build this temple. And the Israelites are in the midst of a drought and a famine, and, and they don't have the kind of resources that Solomon had. And so they're discouraged. We actually read of this in Ezra 3, verse 12. We read, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Those who had seen the temple, the first temple, were weeping, not with joy, but with sadness, for the temple looked nothing like it did. It was small and despicable in comparison. And so as they were discouraged by the the seeming nothingness of this temple, it seemed that their their progress had slowed. Their discouragement led them to, to slow down or even stop rebuilding the temple. They had no desire to persevere. I wonder if you've experienced that. You're building something, And as you're building it, you're beginning to realize, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to look like. And you start to slow down and maybe you get distracted by other things and you don't persevere. Well, that's what happened to the Israelites. The temple was not going to be as glorious as it was. And because it seemed small and inconsequential, the Israelites did not want to persevere. And so the Lord was calling them, not just to highlight the problem there in verse 3, but we see in verse 4 and verse 5, calling them to be strong. This is the same phrase that, that the Lord calls Joshua before he goes into the promised land in Joshua 1. Be strong. That is to, to take courage. Don't be discouraged, but be encouraged to take initiative and pursue rebuilding the temple. He says, don't, don't worry about what the outcome will be. Rather, be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people. And why are they to be strong? Well, because the Lord is with them. We see there in verse 4, they're called to work. After being called to be strong, he says, Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The temple may seem small or insignificant by outward appearance, They didn't have access to the same resources that Solomon and others had had, but it was the same God who was working in their midst. And just as he had been with them as they came out of Egypt, just as he had promised at Mount Sinai that he would dwell with them and be their God, he was with them now. God is assuring his people, strengthening his people with the presence of his spirit. That's what we saw in chapter 1 when his spirit came and stirred the people up to repent and to rebuild. So here the, the spirit is coming as an assurance that they may not fear. Right? So we looked last week at the right fear of the Lord, which motivates our obedience. And here's a wrong fear that they were having, an anxious worry that would freeze them in their obedience. And the Lord's saying, do not fear, for I am with you. 
Don't fear and freeze. Rather, be strong and act because I am with you. You know, it seems that the Israelites were so concerned with, with vain glory. They were so concerned in their pride that they didn't obey by continuing to rebuild the temple. They didn't see the goodness of just obeying Lord in the small and mundane things of life. Well, we too, friends, can miss the glory of the mundane. We can miss how God has often ordained the Christian life to be doing the ordinary, to be doing the common. That we're not called to have famous lives with these great works. We're called to love our families, to love our neighbors, to love our fellow members and co-workers. We're called to love our God. And sometimes that can seem mundane, that can seem ordinary and not glorious. It may not impress many people around you, but that's not to be our concern. Because even the mundane and ordinary is really anything but that when the Christian is working, for there the Lord is present. So friends, you and I may not have a public, significant public ministry like Billy Graham. This church may never have the influence like our neighbor church down the street. Yet we are not to be concerned with vainglory but rather with obedience to God, even in the seeming insignificant, because the Lord is with us. And this is good encouragement to us as a church, but I was thinking even of this, that this is really good encouragement to parents, that your work as mom and dad may seem ordinary and mundane. Your work may not seem to be making much progress, but the Lord says, be strong, press on. For his presence is with you, and even his presence can make the small and insignificant sacred. Well, not only are the Israelites not to be discouraged because the Lord is with them, the Lord then in verses 6 through 9 makes a promise that he's sovereignly working so that the glory of this house will be greater than the former. They're so concerned with their vain glory that they, that they, they don't realize that, that the Lord is making it, going to make it more glorious than the former house. In verses 6 through 8, we see the Lord of hosts promise this. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The emphasis here in verses 6 through 8, what? Is on the action of the Lord of hosts. If you remember, the Lord of hosts is the, the name by which God is, is uh, foremost used for God here in Haggai. It teaches us of his sovereign rule and authority over the nations and all in nature. And here, the Lord of hosts is promising that he will so work in nature and in amongst the nations that he will provide the resources for his temple. So rather than being discouraged and fearing that the temple would, would never be the same, slowing down in the work, the people of God would be to be encouraged to obey because the Lord promises to bless them with the resources for his house through his sovereign work. That's what we see. We see that he's going to fill his house with glory. And that glory, I think, is, is the silver and the gold of the nations. All the treasures of the nations are going to come and, and, and fill this house. One commentator put it this way. The consideration of their lack of wealth and material are irrelevant. The Lord is their king and shepherd. They shall want nothing in the service of the Lord. He is the Lord Almighty, and this is what he says. 
The Lord is going to provide for his house, and he's going to do so through a sudden and powerful action. That's what we see there of that shaking. I don't necessarily know if it's an actual earthquake or shaking of the land like that, but I think it's speaking of the Lord's sudden and powerful action. There will be nothing that is out of the reach of the Lord. The gold and the silver of the nations are his. And therefore, he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. This temple will be glorious in, in a far greater way. Not only will it be glorious, but its work in this place, he says, I will give peace. The word for peace here is the word shalom. It speaks of a whole peace, a full peace, well-being and prosperity and success and safety. This will be a place where God and his people will dwell in, in, in right relationship, where God's people will dwell in peace with their neighbors. God will bring peace to the land through this place. Well, this was fulfilled first about four years after this prophecy. So we don't get to see it here in Haggai, but in Ezra 6, we read that the house, the temple is finished in the sixth year of Darius the king. So about four years after this prophecy. And this temple was, was great. We read in Mark 13 that it was made with wonderful stones and full of wonderful buildings. Its glory was great. The, the, the Lord incarnate stood in that very temple. It's far greater than the Israelites could have imagined at the time of Haggai. The Lord worked in such a way that the temple was greater than the former. He fulfilled his promise. Yet even that is not its full fulfillment because that temple was destroyed. Yet there was a temple that was destroyed but was raised up three days later. And this temple is Jesus Friends, in Jesus, we have the promise fulfilled of a greater glory. In Hebrews 1, 3, we read this about Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Do you want to know what God is like? you want to see God's glory in its fullness? Look to Jesus. In Colossians 1, 19 through 20, we read, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Friends, the very essence and the purpose of the Old Testament temple is fulfilled in Jesus. The temple was where God made his glory known. The temple was where God dwelled. The temple was where the Israelites would come to find peace with God through sacrifices and worship. And friends, in Christ, God has made his glory known. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled. And only in Christ can true and full peace with God and others be known. Christ is the true temple. So that all who come to him, turning from their sin, can know peace. All people for all the nations. God will bring in from all the nations those who he has called. All who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. So as we read Haggai 2 verse 9, we're to set our eyes to Jesus and his first coming. Yet the author of Hebrews 12, which we read earlier in our service, says Haggai is pointing us not just to the first coming of Jesus, but to his second coming. This promise of God coming to shake the heavens and the earth was, was seen as God came to earth in Christ. But it's also going to be seen on a future day. 
in fullness. This promise that on that day the Lord will cause the, the glory of the latter to fall, exceed the glory of the former, will be fully realized when Christ returns. On that day, all the temporary, all the things that are able to be shaken and destroyed will be no more so that we may dwell in a kingdom that is not shaken. The promise here in Haggai 2 verse 9 is of the day of the Lord when God, the judge, will return and he will establish his eternal and enduring kingdom. About that kingdom and that temple we read in Revelation 21 this. John writes, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." Friends, do you see the, the connection here to Haggai 2? All the nations, all the kings will bring their glory and honor into this city where the temple is not a building, but it is the very person of God and the Lamb. And at that moment, friends, the glory of God will shine so bright that there will be no sun or moon. At that moment, the dwelling place of God will be with man for all eternity. The glory of the latter will be greater than the glory of the former. And so through Haggai, our hearts are set to hope for that day, that day when the Lord will make this temple known. But as we hope for the day of the Lord, we're to be encouraged as the Israelites were. Right? They were, they were this message was to encourage them to build the temple now. And so to us, friends, the encouragement now is we think of the hope of the day of the Lord is to build the temple of God now. We don't do that by building a building. The temple is not a building. It is the church. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 declares to the Corinthian church that we are the temple of the living God. That we as Christians are the place that right now God's glory is known and that peace is made known to the nations. One day we will experience the greater glory of that day, and it will be a joyous day. But as we wait, we are to build the temple of his people. So Stafford Baptist, be encouraged this week. I wonder if you're here this morning and you find yourself discouraged. Maybe you think to yourself, oh, I remember this church 15 years ago, and we were growing, and there was so much happening. But now it seems so small and almost insignificant. Or maybe you're discouraged because our resources are thin. There never seems to be enough money or people or programs. Whatever it is that discourages you, that causes you to be disheartened, friends, hear the promise of God. He acts on behalf of his people. He is the one who does the work. He promises to shake heavens and, and the earth so that the glory of his house will be greater than the former. It's not of our own hands, but of his. He promises to intervene on, on the behalf of his people. So don't worry about vain glory. Don't get caught up in, in numbers and how we can impress those around us. Be wary of our own pride and rather trust that God will build his people. 
that his authority and sovereignty will work all things out for his glory. And as we trust God to do that work, we can then be empowered to obey, to be strong and do the work that God has called us to do. So friends, obey. Obey by telling the nations about the peace that is able to be known in Jesus Christ. The Lord says that he will fill his house from those from the nations. So friends, how are you calling to seek, to calling the nations to come to Jesus? Obey by telling the nations about the peace, but friends, also obey by building up this church through love. Be eager to maintain the unity of God's body here at SBC by speaking the truth in love, using our words to build up and not corrupt, by letting go of anger and bitterness and rather being kind to one another, forgiving as God and Christ forgave us. Build up the church into Christ. When discouraged, we can press on in obedience because God promises a greater glory for his temple. One that will come on that day. But not only does God promise a greater glory for his temple, we see in verses 10 through 19, God also promises a greater blessing. And this promise is for those who are repentant. So let's look at God promising a greater blessing for a repentant people. In verses 10 through 19. Maybe in your Bible you see a little subheading above verse 10. The ESV reads this way, blessings for a defiled people. And subheadings are obviously not scripture, right? They're not inspired by God. Uh, Haggai, when he wrote this, did not write a little subheading above this section that said blessings for defiled people. But they're often helpful in helping us understand what's going on. And I think that's what's happening here. As we think for a summary of what's happening in verses 10 through 19, it's God pronouncing blessings for a defiled people. About two months after the prophecy of verses 1 through 9, on the 24th day of the ninth month, the Lord speaks again through Haggai, the prophet. And the first part of his message in verses 10 through 14 is directed to the priest of Israel. He asks two questions. The first question in verse 12, if someone carries a holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The point of that question is, can holiness be transferred? So if, if they were, this holy meat was likely the meat that was sacrificed, can that meat, as it's put in the fold and it touches other things, can it, can it make those other things holy and consecrated? And the answer the priests say is no. Holiness cannot be transferred by mere touch. The second question is then the opposite. Well, if, if holiness can't be transferred, can, can defilement be transferred? Haggai said in verse 13, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So if a person who is unclean by his touching of a, of a, of a corpse touches these food, that, that bread or stew or wine or oil, that food becomes unclean. So while holiness is not passed by touch, defilement is passed by touch. Well, friends, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with the Israelites? Haggai applies it for us in verse 14. Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. The Lord, through Haggai, applies this, that, that, that they cannot be made clean by their sacrifices and religious rituals. 
not while the house of the Lord lies in ruins. So they were defiled because this temple had not been rebuilt. They were continuing to do sacrifices and the religious rituals of those days. But that wasn't making them right before God. They were defiled because they were continuing in their disobedience. See, the Lord could not accept their religious rites, their religious acts, if there was no repentance and no true obedience. This is not a new revelation from the Lord. Again in the, again in the scripture, we read of this principle that the Lord does not accept mere religious acts. He longs for repentance and obedience. One of those cases is in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. There the Lord is rejecting Saul as king, and Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So King Saul had tried to justify his disobedience to God by saying, well, I'm going to use the things that I took to make sacrifices to the Lord. Yet Samuel says very clearly, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. And since that's the point here in Haggai 2, it is better for them to repent and to obey than just continue in religious activities. So brothers and sisters, hear this warning. Not even the best of our religious actions are able to make us acceptable before the Lord apart from true repentance. We can do religious things like reading our Bible, serving in childcare, attending Bible studies or Sunday school, leading VBS or Awana, and still not be right with the Lord. And I was reminded of this this week. We prayed for the shootings that took place in Atlanta, but the suspect who was arrested was a member of a Southern Baptist church who served in church, yet if truly guilty, committed a horrendous evil. Friends, let that be a sober reminder for us of this truth, that we're not saved by our membership. We're not saved by our religious acts, but only through true repentance that is seen in our obedience. The Israelites could not be made right by doing religious acts, by sacrificing, not while the temple lied in ruins. And so here, Haggai reminds the Israelites that they're defiled by their disobedience, but then calls the people to consider from this day forward. So if you remember in chapter 1, we saw that call to consider before. It was the call to consider how their actions and their circumstances reflected the judgment of God. And I think here the call is for them to consider now how their repentance is going to lead to the blessings of God. He reminds them in in, in the second half of verse 15 and 16 and 17 of, of how they lived before they turned in repentance that before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare, he asked. Well, when they came for 20 measures, there were only 10. When they sought wine vat of 50 measures, there were only 20. They were struck by God with toil and, and with blight, with mildew and with hail. This is a recounting of what the Lord had already said in Haggai 1, verses 6 through 11, that, that he had providentially ordered judgment upon the Israelites And that they did not turn to him in the midst of this until the word of the Lord had come. 
And so he says in verse 18, Consider then from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. I think here what we're led to understand is that now the Israelites were beginning to lay the foundation of the temple again. They were beginning to, to rebuild this on the 24th day of the ninth month. And because they were now repentant, the Lord is promising to bless them. So if you look at verse 19, the Lord promises to renew his covenant with them. He, he asks this question, is the seed yet in the barn? Which basically he's meaning, I hope you've planted all your seeds, that there's no seed left in the barn because I'm going to bless it. It's going to grow. It's going to have abundance. The plants had yielded nothing. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree had all yielded nothing. But from now on, the Lord was going to bless them because they had repented. Friends, this is an awesome promise. The Lord was being faithful to his covenant. He had cursed them as he had promised when they disobeyed. But now that they were obeying, now that they were repenting, the Lord was blessing them. The Lord's blessing presupposes repentance and obedience from the people. See, that's, that's the heart of what Haggai wants to encourage the people with. That God's blessing comes to the repentant. That he promises to bless the repentant. Well, friends, God promises to bless the repentant. So will you repent? Friends, are you here? Are you marked by a life of repentance? Will you be one of the repentant people? While the promise of physical blessings were tied to the Old Testament covenant, the covenant of the law, we know that God still blesses his people. This blessing, though, not tied to our work, but tied to God's work in us, that we are blessed through our union with Christ by faith, that in the new covenant we look not to fulfill the law in our own hands, but to one who has already fulfilled the law on our behalf. And as we look to Christ in faith, we are promised every blessing. Josh prayed this. He, he, he prayed from Ephesians 1 verse 3 where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When we turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we are promised every spiritual blessing in Christ. So friends, we may experience physical blessing. We may not experience physical blessing. But we will experience no true blessing apart from Christ. Friends, you and I will not find blessing from God in doing religious acts. We will not find blessing from God by just doing that which seems religious. Yet we are encouraged that we can find blessing by repenting of our sin and turning in faith to the one who lived a perfect life, yet went to the cross on our behalf and rose again that we might know true blessing in him. Friends, this is hope for a defiled people. Our sin keeps us from God, but God promises to bless those who turn from their sin and come to him in Christ. Well, the Israelites were encouraged that though they had been defiled through their repentance and obedience, God was promising to bless them. And with that promise, what are they encouraged to do? To continue building the temple, continue pressing on in obedience. While God promised a greater glory, he's promised a greater blessing. His promised pinnacle 
I think, in the promise of a greater king who is the Messiah. And that's what we see in verses 20 through 23, our final promise, the final message from Haggai, promise of a greater king. Indeed, I think we come to the the chief promise of God here in Haggai. This promise comes directly to the governor, the leader of God's people at that time, Zerubbabel. So the Lord tells Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel directly, and he says, tell him this. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth there in verse 21. He continues in verse 22, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Well, here we see the promise repeated from verses 6 and 7. The promise of God's sudden and powerful act pointing us toward our eschatological hope, the the hope of the day of the Lord. On that day, the Lord will act in such a way that all the nations will be judged. They will take their own swords and judge each other. They will all come to an end on that day. And on that day, when the Lord judges all the nations, the Lord will take Zerubbabel, his chosen one, and make him like a signet ring. A signet ring was a way in which the king during a time, that time would, would show that he has given authority to a particular person or message. So here we have the Lord of hosts, the king of the world, the Lord of armies, the Lord almighty, giving Zerubbabel the signet ring, giving his authority to him. This is an amazing promise. Because about a hundred years earlier, in Jeremiah 22, verse 24, the Lord spoke to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah, saying this, As I live, declares the Lord, through Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with the signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear you off. Jeconiah had been the one whom God had given authority to, yet the Lord tore him off. Jeconiah was one of the last kings in Judah before the people were exiled into Babylon. But now, through Zerubbabel, the Lord was was showing he was restoring the line of David. The Lord had not forsaken his promise, but was fulfilling it through putting Zerubbabel on the throne. Yet, friends, we're faced with a little bit of a problem here. Because in the rest of the Old Testament, we know very little about Zerubbabel. He basically vanishes after this, uh, this section of Scripture. No one knows what it is God used Zerubbabel to do. It's actually quite possible that King Darius, hearing of this promise that Haggai was making from the Lord, had Zerubbabel killed or removed from power so that he would not overtake him. But no one really knows. What we do know is that Zerubbabel ultimately disappears. So we're left asking the question, did the Lord answer and keep his promise? And the answer is yes, because through Zerubbabel, the Lord picked up again the royal Davidic line through whom a king will rule for eternity. If you turn just a few pages over in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, we see again the name of Zerubbabel. Starting in verse, verse 12 through 13, we see that sure enough, God has kept his promise that through Zerubbabel, the Messiah would come. We read in verse 12, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel. 
and Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid, and Abuid, the father of Elakim, and Elakim, the father of Azor. And, that, and those names continue until we get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. In other words, friends, what I believe we're to understand of these last few verses of Haggai is that these promises are messianic. They were not to Zerubbabel the person as much as they were to Zerubbabel the heir of David and predecessor of Christ. That through Zerubbabel, God will restore his promise to the line of David, which ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. That Jesus is the one whom God gives this signet ring to. It is Jesus who is the far greater king. It is Jesus who will one day reign and rule over the nations. It is Jesus to whom all the nations, Philippians 2 says, will bow down and exult. It is Jesus who is able to save and deliver his people. So in Christ, we can know the fullness of God's presence and pleasure as we turn from our sin and look to Christ. Well, friends, this is the first and foremost way that we are to apply this chapter of Haggai. Look to Christ. For in Christ, the promises of God are always yes and amen. They are fulfilled in full. Friends, if you are not a Christian here, don't don't hear me wrong. Believing in Christ does not guarantee you physical and material blessings. It doesn't always mean that we'll have an abundance of food or good health. But it does mean that we know the greatest blessing of a mediator between us and God. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior because of our rejection of God. Because of our rejection and our pursuit of our own selfish desires, we are brought under the just judgment of God. And Haggai points to our great mediator, the Messiah, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all these promises. The one through whom God will deliver his people. So friends, if you're not a Christian, look to Christ. Stafford Baptist Church, we too are to look to Christ. We are to hear that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 is a call to run the race with endurance. So if you remember that illustration I used way at the beginning, that the Christian life is to be a marathon and not a sprint. That we are to run this Christian life with endurance. And how are we to do that? Hebrews 12 tells us, by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Friends, are you looking to Jesus more than you, are, than you are looking to anything else? How much time are you giving to reading the news and watching the entertainment? Are you giving more time to looking to Christ and his word? Maybe you're feeling wary. You're discouraged. Friends, look to Christ, who is gentle and lowly in heart, who will bear your burdens. Maybe you're feeling the weight of your sin, defiled, Look to Christ and know that in faith he is able to make us clean. Friends, we look to Christ for transformation. It's as we behold the glory of the Lord in his word that we are transformed by his spirit from one degree of glory to another. Our sanctification begins by looking to Christ, setting our eyes to his first coming with the hope of his second coming. Look to Christ, brothers and sisters. But not only look to Christ, then endure in obedience. The promises of God are ensured to us in King Jesus. We can be sure that one day he will work in such a powerful and sovereign way that he will shake heavens and earth, 
that one day he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. So friends, be ready, as Hebrews 12 calls us, by enduring and obedience. Live in such a way that your whole lives are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Endure in obedience as you hear the promises of God. And friends, we endure to the end together. The author of Hebrews has a recurring theme. He longs to see the people endure. And as he tells Christians to endure, to, to endure he tells them to do so together by exhorting one another, by not neglecting to meet together as you see the day drawing near. So if brothers and sisters endure with one another until that day arrives when the Lord shakes heaven and earth. This is our call from Haggai 2. Endure in obedience because God promises to bless his people. Brothers and sisters, friends, I, I hope that you see that Haggai was not just a prophet to the Old Testament people of Israel who needed to rebuild the temple, but that this is God's word that speaks actively to us here and now. That points us not only to the first coming of Christ, but to his second coming. So brothers and sisters, consider your priorities, consider your repentance, and consider God's promises. Endure in your obedience, because the day will come when he will shake heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice in the promises of your word that we have heard this morning. The promises of that day when you will shake heaven and earth and all the nations so that your glory will be made known in full. Lord, we thank you that we have tasted of that in Christ and we long for the fulfillment of it in his return. Lord, help us this morning to look to your promises and be fueled in our obedience. Lord, help us to be like marathoners running consistently and constantly in our obedience over long periods of time. Help us to endure. Lord, for those who are here this morning may be tempted to move away from you, use your promises to draw them back to you, O God. Help us to hear your promises and endure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.